0: From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is LaTopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate,
1: all hosted by LaTopia's Peter Cox.
2: very warm welcome to the last Latopia After Dark of 2007. And as befits the season, we're doing something rather different tonight. Uh, In fact, we're going to tackle just one topic. But before I introduce it, let me introduce our trusty panel from Fort Lauderdale, the Venice of America. We have writer and leading lawyer Donna Borman. Donna, has it been a good year for you? And what resolutions have you got for 2008?
3: Well, first of all, it's not all a picnic here and 80 degrees at Christmas. I had to wait in line an hour and 15 minutes so my kids could play for four minutes in a one-foot pile of what was by then slush.
2: (laughs) My heart bleeds for you. It's, It's tough, isn't it? But someone's got to do it, I suppose. Also working on a novel for the young adult market is Dave Bartram. Dave Lectures in Fine Art and comes from England's West Country. Has it been a good year, Dave? And what resolutions have you got for 2008?
4: Uh... It's, it's been a year, let's say. It, it's it's yeah. like all years, it's had its good points and its bad points. Uh, in terms of resolutions, I think uh, one would be certainly try and stay sane, I think, and the second one would be try and uh, get published. But that's yeah. the one I have every year. I've yet to meet it, but mm-hmm. fingers crossed.
2: 2008 might be the time. Beverly is our next panelist Beverly Gray she hails from Indianapolis and she's currently finishing a fantasy novel has it been a good year Bev and what res- resolutions can you share with us tonight
1: it's it's turned out to be a good year there were some rough patches and I never make resolutions I consider that flying in the face of karma yeah
2: yeah, yeah. very very wise actually um finally back now to- you tell me that, <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> sorry and finally back to dear old blighty richard Howes is one of the first students to be accepted for britain's highly prestigious national academy of writing has it been a good year rich and what resolutions have you got
5: oh it's it's been a, a hell of a long year actually it, it's felt really quite long um certainly the the north course the naw course has has been a real eye-opener to me uh, so I, i've, I've learned quite a lot and it on, on that respect it's got to be a good year because uh, i've grown as a writer um as far as next year uh, i hope to be the uh fastest finish uh for the naw course uh fastest finger first so so either i'll complete that next year or i'll try to get on to uh who wants to be a millionaire <laughs>
2: uh, <Ed>. <laughs> <laughs> oh well fine yes there's always an option i suppose um the main question we're going to address ourselves tonight is, is that really it's fundamental. It's all about the future of story itself. And to kick things off, I'm going to ask Andrew Gilman, who will be familiar to many listeners of our earlier podcasts, to set the scene. Andrew is currently shooting yet another series for BBC Three, starring Rob Brydon. And together with his producer, Alex Cavalieru, they've been having some rather heretical thoughts about the very nature of story itself. Andrew, over to you.
6: Uh, thanks, Peter. I'm sitting here in the offices of Jones the Film with producer Alex Caballero. Alex, we're here because uh, a week or so ago we talked about uh, how you felt that uh, if a film no, depended for its success on the ending, then it was a bad film and gave the audience a bad experience on the way through. Um, and the reason for that was that well, you felt that um, a piece of creative work shouldn't rely on the ending for it to be good, and if it relied on the ending, then it wouldn't be good. It was self-defining.
5: Yes,
0: well, I think primarily, I, I think... Uh, primarily, I think the main reason is is because if, if the film, if you're constantly worried about what the ending is going to be, then I think you can't sit back and enjoy the, the film for what it is. You can't enjoy it because you're constantly worried, what's the ending going to be, what's the ending going to be? You, you don't pay enough attention to what's really happening. Um, and there's too much angst, and that angst, I don't, I think, is a negative trait. I don't think it's positive. Um, uh, I think because then, then all the ending is a relief, and if that's the case, then the uh, the film can never really be revisited.
6: So actually, the, you you haven't had a pleasurable experience, and once you know the ending, if the ending was the only point in watching it, then there's no point in rewatching. So like re-reading a favourite book, if you yeah. know what the point of the book was then it doesn't have anything new for you.
0: No, it doesn't. Well, I think something like The Sixth Sense, I can't imagine... Uh, uh, the only reason to watch The Sixth Sense again is, is to say, oh, well, was it Was it telling me the truth? Oh, it was, OK, I never want to see it again. I can't imagine anybody really wanting to watch it um, because it's going to end. Because the, the end, it was so dependent on the ending that um, the film almost becomes void and, and uh, isn't valid afterwards.
6: So like Titanic, well, actually, you know what happens in the end, the boat sinks. Um, and that was one of the reasons that Hollywood started a, one of the many reasons Hollywood started to panic when James Cameron was shooting the Titanic uh, because somebody said yeah well you know what happens in the end and actually the point about Titanic wasn't that the boat sinks is your journey through to the point where the boat sinks absolutely it's a a a
0: famous story I I think Titanic's one example but I think there's for me if you look at the the, the list of the greatest films of all time I think often uh, you know the ending or you see the ending first I mean films you look at um, Lawrence Arabia. Um, Lawrence dies at the beginning. You know he's going to die, so you don't care. So whatever, you know we win the war. You know, so so essentially, essentially, it's an interesting, it's a fantastic film, and there's no, at no point are you worried about what's going to happen next. You just enjoy every scene for what it is and for what's happening, and you're interested the whole time. Uh, I think uh, Citizen Kane at the beginning of Citizen
6: Kane. Uh, you know, Charles Foster Kane is dead. Are you saying? Would you say that? Would it be right to say that this is a an aspect of twentieth century culture? That actually, this dependence on the ending oral, or or is there a historical precedent? Well,
0: there is because Aristotle, who was um, passionate about uh, about tragedies, very passionate. He wrote Poetics, which is a really good, interesting work about it. Um, And if you read it, it feels easily applied to anything today. It's not like reading some old thing that you know. It's absolutely intellectual. Um, I th- he was very passionate about tragedies and I, I don't necessarily agree that tragedy is the only way I don't necessarily think that you have to have um, a tragic ending but what he was very passionate about it was was that at the beginning you knew it was going to happen and that the character would obviously lead to his own demise and obviously if it's a tragedy you know he's going to die because it's a tragedy um, but often you would have something like the Oracle says this is going to happen to you and the audience are okay, they accept that they know it's going to happen to him but how is what the interesting thing is. And, and, and usually it's because it's his own character demise. So it's the journey travelled rather than the place around? Absolutely, the journey travelled. Romeo and Juliet's a great example. Uh, it's a pair of StarCross lovers oh, take oh, their life. Yeah, you know, the very beginning, up. that's the opening summit. Um,
6: uh, so, in fact, you've got told uh, the story StarCross, they're lovers, and they call themselves. So, actually, that's it. Yeah, they, they, you're the, relieved. the game's up.
0: But you're relieved of it. You're, you're relieved of that pressure. Yes. You no longer, someone's taken away the pressure of knowing the ending. All you can do is sit back and enjoy it. If I said to you at the end, if I said to you before you watched The Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis um, is a ghost, I'm sorry if I've ruined it for anyone, uh, then I think you wouldn't enjoy the film. You'd think it was rubbish. Uh, I think you'd think it, was, it, well, had, no, it had no relevance, yeah. it had no meaning and
6: was poor. Um, do you think that, though, I'm just going to test your theory just to see if I can break it. Yeah. i had never able, been able to before with anything you've said. <laughs> um, do you think, though, that it's a product of a writer not working hard enough if they've got this astonishing ending yeah. that they relax and don't use as much effort to make the journey to the ending sufficiently good.
0: I think there's an element of that, um, but I think they, quite like the audience, the writer themselves, are so concerned yeah, exactly. with what's going to happen at the end that um, that, that, that they... Yeah, they, they they, they, they try and get there faster and they don't really care what's going on too much and they want to speed it up and they, want to, they go back over it. I, I, so I often think that um, that's probably the problem is that they're quite like the audience. They're having their own anxiety about getting to the ending and then they put too much pressure on the ending. And then you've got a problem where it is if the ending isn't good enough, then it ruins the entire film. And if it's too good,
6: you don't see where it came from and you don't believe you don't,
0: it. You don't see where it came from, don't no, believe it. So the ending has to, um, has to be a, a, a reflection of the rest of the film. And it has to, you know, it has to... I mean, and, and lots of films are great, all the great films, I think, have that. And, and even if they're not great, even if they're other great films, if the, the endings often aren't a massive climax, you know, I mean, um, even Casablanca, he doesn't get with the girl at the end, he kind of walks off, and there is, there's a bit of an anticlimax,
6: but you feel a bit calmer about it. Yeah, it didn't matter, because the journey through to the ending had been the point of the film. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and not the ending. So, would you say endings are rubbish? Uh, would I say endings are rubbish...
0: Uh, no i wouldn 't say endings are rubbish. Um, there are times when i 've been really satisfied at an ending, uh, but another recent example even then a recent example of, a, of an ending I thought was excellent ending is the Matrix. I thought it was fantastic uh, and it 's not a do its machine you know it 's not a gift and a thing from god that 's coming in you know, as I we'll as' talk about it's, It really is a, it, we were predicted it by the Oracle, it had an oracle in it. You know it followed all those things it wasn 't a tragedy, but it, it followed the same kind of path as a tragedy, but it was a happy ending. Uh, I'm talking about the first Matrix. In it, she said, "You're the one," or you find out he's the one. Morpheus thinks he's the one. What does the one mean? It means he's all powerful, controlling the Matrix. And it turns out he is. And you you, you accept it. You kind of knew he was going to be. So when he is, you're 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 satisfied and relieved. But at the same time, there's been not that pressure to see what would happen because you knew he would he would he would succeed. So um, so that's a, that's a good recent example of of a, of a good ending. Uh, and I think there can be really good endings and satisfying endings.
6: Would you say the same apply, applies, Same rule applies to all forms of storytelling books, for example? Yes. I th- um, a lot of these subscribers to the Litopia podcast are authors.
0: Okay, yes, I think it does subscribe to books, uh, definitely. Uh, and I think, um, again, I think if reading a book, it c- a book can be very irritating. I mean, I mean, I like a page-turning book, but when a page-turning book becomes a, a page I don't read, or when I scan read, then I, I really don't enjoy it. You know, it's books where I know there's. Sometimes I like it when uh, there isn't a lineup of a massive ending, or an enormously great ending. You know, if the, if, if the book doesn't even pretend there's going to be a good ending, um, I think that's when it's that's when you kind of appreciate it the most. So the
6: ending shouldn't have a wow factor. It should have an ah satisfied yeah. factor.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I am not one of these people that is concerned with getting getting to the end of end, end of the book. I'm really easily. I can easily put a book down after 20 pages and say, "Oh, not, more than that, but 150," and say, "I loved that book." And so
6: you don't have to finish it in order to love it.
0: Oh, not at all. No, 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 not at all. I've read um, *Crime and Punishment*. I haven't read it all the way through, but it's one of my favourites. Sounds strange, but I just enjoyed it for every every passing page. I loved it, and I, did, I couldn't care less what was going to happen at the end, and I still can't.
6: And that uh, that actually fits your theory where the ending is unimportant.
0: It's it's unimportant and irrelevant to me. It really is. I mean. Uh, it, sometimes you know, and, and usually the problem is, especially if there's an expectation on the ending, you'd rather tell the audience at the beginning, "with This is what the ending is," so then they go, "Oh, okay, fine," all right, and then they can get on with it. There's the has gone, that and that negative emotion I think's gone. Um, it really, you know, it, it's a fantastic way to, to get you started and, and make you, help you enjoy the film. Hopefully, yeah, there's a number
6: of uh, examples like, I can think where the lead character says at the beginning and. Uh, voiceover or narration, Uh, this is the story of when I X, then I did Y, and it happened to be Z.
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, American Beauty, you know, is is at the beginning, he says, uh, I'm going to die. You know, and you think, "Okay, well, I'm relieved of that now. If he just got shot, he'd be very irritated. Yes. And and you wouldn't know what's going to happen next, but you go, he's going to die. Okay, I'm watching the change to when he he becomes and when he does die. Um, So, yeah, I think... uh, And I think a bad ending is when there's so much pressure put on the ending that... um, it's, it's not worked out properly. And then, then again, i talked to you about the Duke's machine has to come in where the, the, the act of God comes in.
6: Um, yeah, something so, way out of the story that we couldn't out. have known about. So there's a bizarre pact, isn't there, between an author and a reader um, where you both have to treat each other with respect and uh, not take a chance, not, be, not take a piss. Absolutely. So you can't I'm telling you everything you need to know in a way that is interesting. I don't need to hide anything from you because we've got this pact. It puts the pressure on the, the writer to be interesting.
0: It does put pressure on the writer to be if Because if, if all the writer's doing is saying, I've got this great ending for you, then you going, well, what is it then? And they go, no, no, you've got to read these 200 pages first. I'm like, well, what is it? No, yeah, you got to read 200 pages No, no, well, oh, please tell me what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you got to read 200 pages so like, Oh, okay, it's yeah. a big chore. Yeah. You know, it, you don't want to do that. You want to tell them, that there's, this, there's this ending, it happens. Now, watch, now read the book and enjoy it. You know, I think, I think that's what you need. And if there is, a, I think you still... Well, can you have an ending without telling what the ending is? I think you can imply one. If you go to watch a Hollywood blockbuster, you know it's going to be a happy ending. That's an implied ending. There's an implied ending that that Ghostbusters—they're not going to die at the end. You know, yeah. you know they're going to save the day. So you aren't really too concerned. I think that's, in fact, in some ways, that's why some of the best modern films are these kind of nice comedies that are coming out. These, these kind of really unedgy comedies, that you, American comedies, because. You know it's just going to be a happy ending at the end when and, and you don't really care about it, let's be honest.
6: So, uh, not my expert area, but a crime thriller. Who did it? Uh,
0: who done it? That's a very good example because you really are concerned with who done it in those. Uh, and the interesting thing about crime thrillers, I always find, is, is there's often a case for there aren't many, uh, as many as you think, anyway. Or often, if there are, I mean, a, a good example, I mean, what, uh, who, who's got the niche on crime thrillers? Colombo. At the beginning, you know who it is. Yeah, well, Columbo is unique in that.
6: Uh, is it though? Uh, I suppose it well, is. It's, it's um, it's quite Hitchcock. You know, the 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 audience knows more than the characters. In they it. They do, yeah. And in Hitchcock, you often,
0: uh, if you, it's not a Who Done It, usually in Hitchcock, it's more of a, uh, it, it's a story told. Yeah, that.
6: it's it's a there was, it's a technical device. Whereas yeah. Columbo is more uh, not a Who Done It, but. How he going to he, catch him? How is he
0: going to catch him? But that's what's such an effective series. Yeah, it really worked really well because of that level.
6: And also, you're right about that because the story of Colombo is the story of this scrubby old man goading uh, posh toffs.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or
6: people that think they're superior to.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, and but I mean, uh, but essentially, you know, he knows as well. You know, he knows at the beginning who, who it is, and it's just a case of how is he going to catch it, How is he going to put the evidence together? That's what's interesting. Uh, who Done for a good example because I can't think of a modern one. I can't think of I can't think of many actually. Um, Can you
6: not think of them, or do you don't think you don't think they're there? They're
0: out there. I think they are there. I mean, there's Murder on the Orient Express, Um, but I don't think they're there. You know, I don't think they are there as much whodunits. You know, there are examples, of of course, where uh, there are examples where there are plot twists and whodunits. But I think The Third Man is another good example. I think that's a magnificent film. Uh, I think the ending is, is, is nicely shot and it looks fantastic through the suicide not. It doesn't interest me. It just, I just don't care what happens to Harry Knight. Part of me sort of feels like... But, you know, it's one, but there are a few points where I'm interested, but I, I don't care what happens at the end of the uh, Thurbo. I'm just trying to think of, of uh, it, but that's not really a whodunit. I mean, I can't think of many at all, to be absolutely honest with you. Maybe it's just something
6: I'm not, I don't enjoy. <laughs> um, so, Alex, if there's a, a writer out there struggling over their manuscript or their script... What's the piece of advice you give them to, to break free and uh, create a fantastic piece of work? Uh,
0: certainly relieve yourself of the ending. Uh, either tell it up front, and then you can worry about telling the story, and don't feel that it's the absolute beyond the end or that there has to be a magnificent climax. Uh, it's not a sporting event. Uh, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's a piece of art, and I think with pieces of art, you, you should relieve yourself of there having to be a good ending and try and tell a great story. And the ending may come, you know, but often, uh, if you know the ending first, know the ending, but then make sure, and then and then discard it as if it's, as if that's given. Tell it to begin with, and then you can enjoy telling the story to get there. Uh, that's that's the most important part. Alex, thank you very
6: much. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much, Andrew and Alex. And as if on cue, Variety is currently reporting, and I swear this is a coincidence, or maybe we're just way ahead of the curve here, uh, that more and more films are abandoning the classical three-act structure in favour of non-linear story construction. Uh, forget Screenwriting 101, says the Variety article, which will be linked to from uh, the show notes on our site. Some of the year's most audacious screenplays throw out the rule book, jumping back and forth in time instead of unfolding in a linear three act fashion. And then they go on to quote director Brian De Palma as saying. I watch my daughters who sit on their beds with their computers on their stomachs, and they look at little pieces of this and little pieces of that, and that's how they get their information, he explains. Uh, There's no objective narrative form, because everything has been put through a lens and distorted, depending on who's telling the story. That's what he says. So what do we think, gurus? Is story dead? And are we so cynical now... Um, as a species, that we don't even suspend our disbelief anymore. Let me invite Richard to be the first to dive into the fray.
5: Crikey! Um, well, first, first off, in in response to uh, Andrew and, and and Nick, was it Alex? Uh, Alex, sorry. Yeah. Oops. Um, in response to uh, their their discussion, I, I kind of ag- agree with with the point that the audience. And, and readers in particular with books need to feel that they know where the story is going regardless of how the the structure of the story is laid out to them whether it's going backwards in time whether it's jumping between um, now and flashbacks or jumping forwards um, that the reader or the audience has to have a sense that they understand what kind of story they're, they're watching or reading or listening to and from that, they can then make up their minds. I mean, l- like, like uh, Alex was saying with uh, Aristotle, that there was the, the perception that there is two kinds of story. There is comedy and there is tragedy. And in a comedy uh, in ancient Greece, certainly with Shakespeare, the, the play would end with the bad guys being removed and the two lovers getting married. Uh, and in a tragedy, um, it would be the protagonist losing everything possibly his life possibly his mind um and as as alex was saying that in shakespeare's particularly they said at the beginning of the plays that this is how this story is going to play out so the audience does need to know to an extent but i just disagree slightly with what he says regarding for example the sixth sense where if you knew that bruce willis was a ghost you wouldn't want to watch the rest of the Rest, rest of the story play out because that, that kind of disregards the, um, the the second level that makes up s- stories uh, and that's character uh, and I, th- I think he's disregarding the, the strengths of character within stories um, certainly with Sixth Sense I knew what the ending was because somebody had ruined it for me mm. uh, and that didn't dim- diminish for me what was happening
1: I, I think you know, I can appreciate the fact that the younger people especially growing up in the technological era they're growing up to, they're a little more adept at multitasking. Um, I was talking to a coworker, gal, who's considerably younger than I, and oh well I'm a mother and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and she you know, she she's doing all these things that to me I would have had to done in a very linear step by step fashion. But when it comes to story um, I think the idea works a little better in film. Uh, when they when, when they were discussing some of the older films, I found it interesting that they didn't mention Sunset Boulevard. That starts with William Holden floating in the swimming pool. So that you know he's dead, and yet he's narrating the story. Uh, I, I think it still comes back to what works best with the story you're trying to tell. There, there's some that Sure, you you can, okay, this happens and we can get that out of the way and we can concentrate on character or we can concentrate on this. But there are other stories that it still needs to be linear. You still need to to do you all know, the front, the middle, the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the challenge for any writer or filmmaker is determine what will work best to connect to your reader or your audience. And that is the real trick. I've been reading
3: so- Story Structure Architect by Victoria Lynn Schmidt and the book actually talks about variations on the traditional three-act structure. She talks about 11 master structures and the ones that we're talking about that are sort of non-linear would be what she would call the fate structure um, with some of the replay structure and the parallel structure and the fate structure, the the Titanic, which I can't even talk about because I hated the movie, but
1: um, <laughs> oh really? I thought I was the only one who didn't like that. Oh, oh how, my how God! I, like I hated that, that nice movie.
3: Oh, <laughs> between that and, and the English Patient, I I just can't even talk about those two no. movies. But but uh, yes, that my I've never quite forgiven those either. Any of the actors, even in those movies, um, but but with the, the fate structure, since you know the ending, there has to be a psychological component, and you have to show that the main character um, could, or basically that, that there are, are choices that the main character could make along the way, but, but for it to work, you have to show that the main character couldn't make any different choices, and it's hard to do. And, and one of the reasons I hated the Titanic story was because the characters made stupid choices. If that girl had just gotten into her lifeboat instead of saddling DiCaprio with her, they would both be alive.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I, I, they lost me when she kept going up and down below decks in the fridge of water. I just, okay, I've had enough of that. But oh, my so gosh. You know, I hate stories with stupid... T- I'm sorry. It's a chick flick, and I didn't find it a very compelling chick flick. I'll stick with Betty Davis and now Voyager. Thank you.
4: Yeah, um, I was thinking about this because it, it's, it's quite interesting. We I mean, talk about the sixth sense is, is is one example. Another example would be The Others, where once you know the ending of that... What's the point of watching the movie? You know, the whole movie is built, mm. which is what the, the the thesis was that the movie shouldn't depend upon its ending for its impact, um, and the others utterly depends on the ending for its impact. And once you know the ending, uh, I won't say that in case Rich hasn't seen it. Um, oh, I've, I've got it on the shelf, thanks. I'm, well, I'm actually ru-
5: thinking of sending it away because I'm not going to yeah. watch it again.
4: I've I've ruined the Narnia books for you. I just didn't want to ruin anything else. God um, ah, damn you! <laughs> <laughs> um, you know once you know what's going to happen what's the point of watching the film I I, I would suggest that it's the difference the ending should be a denouement rather than uh, the kind of raison d'etre if you want to get a bit franglais about it um, you know it, everything shouldn't depend upon the ending um, I mean what did Robert uh, McKee say it was you know the ending gives you the, the overall value of the film and I don't know whether that's true or not when you talk about non-linear narrative, a good example would be Solaris. Uh, not the not the George Clooney one, the original Russian yeah. Solaris, yeah. which is th- this weaving of, of layers of uh, what had happened in this guy's life and how the, the copy of a copy of a copy and it all becomes very strange and we don't really know what's going on anymore. It would have... That would ap- it appeals to a certain sector of the market, and I think there's this idea about these kinds of statements that you know, all generalism- generalizations are wrong, including this one. Hmm. You can't make a sweeping statement and say, yes, that's the catch-all. Everything's going to change now because there will be sectors of the market which will really embrace these kinds of things and sectors of the market that will steadfastly want – those, those three act structures and the right kind of closure and we'll want to know what sort of ending they're going to get and some people will relish the other thing but I think it's right that he's absolutely right that it shouldn't depend utterly upon what happens at the end to give it any kind of value because that you might as well watch the last ten minutes and be done with it. Yeah. Well,
1: I think that again comes back to the whole skill of how you unfold the story um, because the ending could certainly add impact or, you know, this is the absolute right thing to happen, and, you know, some, some readers, some audiences actually like closure. They, they kind of like that, tie it up with a pretty red ribbon, okay, I'm set in my mind, this is good. Um, it's like everything else. I don't think all films should be that way or this way. Same thing with books. We, we have such a wealth of richness and variety, and, and that's what I treasure because i'll read anything from children's books to aristotle or you know some heavy old history book and it's the idea that you can go out and find the different things and not have it all formula all every book is written this way every film is cut this way so i i tend to avoid generalisations too for that reason.
2: I think the, the impression coming over, um, certainly from film and television well probably from film first and then television which um, tends to you know, pretty quickly copy what, uh, what works in the cinema, um, is there is some sort of seismic shift going on that uh, there's, a, there's a change afoot, um, in the same way I, I I seem to remember as film discovered the ideas of Joseph Campbell, the anthropologist Joseph Campbell, in I think probably the late 80s, early 90s, with that seminal book that I actually do recommend to people, which is called The Writer's Journey, whose um, author's name is Vogel, V-O-G-E-L, and... Um, it, it, it seems to me as if they're going overboard, really. I, mean, I, I, I think the entire business, whether it's, it's um, film, television or books, it's actually it's, it's all about emotion. And it's all about the, the basis on which we engage um, our emotions. We invest, actually, our emotions in the story and in the protagonists particularly. And if you can do that in a nonlinear way, that's fine. But um, uh, my own feeling is it's, it's premature to say that the, it's the death of the three-act structure.
5: Well, what you're just saying there, Peter, is what's been key in the latest slew of TV series from Heroes to 24 to Lost. Lost in particular, where the audience doesn't have a bloody clue where the story is going. And all they're hanging on is what, at any given time, a character is going through. Yeah. Um, where they're coming from, what what their history was, and and why they're dealing with a certain situation in a specific way. Um, But the problem, particularly with Lost, is not knowing where the end is going to be and what, all these answers are going to lead to uh, has led a lot of people to say, well, screw this, because I want an ending at some point. There is only so much of my interest and my emotion that can be invested in a tale that is going to go on for an indefinite period of time. I think that's a very
2: good uh, point, And I think it's um, very similar to uh, the way you could talk about uh, a number of so-called postmodern um, authors, actually, and their abandonment of a traditional story structure. I think if you, if you do that, then you are completely dependent on other skills to retain the interest of the reader, which, let us not forget, actually, is much, much tougher on, on book writers than it is on screenwriters, because once you've paid your $10 or whatever it costs these days to, to get into the cinema, you're pretty much going to sit through the film unless it you know it makes you physically sick. Whereas with the book, there's always the temptation to just put it down and not, and not come back to it. So we really do have to grab our authors uh, our readers by the, the short and coolest and not let go I am um, I last night I saw a film which I don't know if anyone else has seen uh, which is sort of very non-linear in its structure called smoke and aces it's actually bizarrely um, yes. a British produced film by working title um, I, I probably can't find enough bad words to say about it actually I mean, it was all wasn't it, it? it truly was yes it didn't engage at all any no. any sort of emotion was sort of repellent um, there was no protagonist which again is very sort of you know um, very modern but um it, it just didn't work for me in the slightest degree, or am I just being old fashioned
5: no you're not it was a complete waste of time um it I mean that one was was geared up towards the fact that all these assassins were headed for this hotel yeah uh, in which they were going to have a big gunfight uh and and that was um shoehorned in between two acts of complete nonsense with these complete crap characters that you have. Absolutely. No invested interest in. And I, I guess, in a way, you're given to attempting to care for the, um, the I, I don't know, were they FBI agents? Uh, the, the Ray Liotta and... Um, yeah, I guess they were. The, the other guy. that They're the only two that really you're supposed to have any interest in. And, and yet, their their stories are just sh- shoved around with the rest of them. And it's kind of a melee of, yeah. you know, of junk. Well, it's...
2: It's a sort of Tarantino rip-off, really. And since you know a lot yes. of Tarantino was a pastiche in any case, a sort of rip-off of a pastiche is probably not going to
5: work. No. No, but... And, and again, um, the the latest film with Clive Owen, Shoot'em Up, which was uh, supposed to be just a um, a, a race of uh, gunfights after gunfights after gunfights, in which you do have a protagonist mm. to care for, but he himself doesn't seem to care at all, uh, and, and, and there's, there's nothing to hold on to, uh, nothing to go back to, complete rubbish.
4: Yeah, but the idea of, of non linear narrative, it's kind of like dressing the same thing up in different clothes, because part of the fun of, of, of these films that jump back and forth, or books for that matter, is that at the end of the film or the book, the reader or, or the viewer has the opportunity to reassemble the parts into the right order, to make sense of it in a linear way. So all we do is we deconstruct what we've seen and read and reconstruct it into a linear mode anyway to, to fully get a sense of what's gone on. So is, is, is a non-linear story
5: acting as a way of just giving us a puzzle so that we worry about the puzzle rather than what, what actually is supposed to be engaging us within the story?
4: Yeah, I think so. I think it's just a, it's another interesting way of um, engaging our interest.
1: Now, now, my question about the nonlinear story, one of the things we're taught now when when writing books is this very heavy emphasis on, you know, making sure you don't head hop, making sure you keep focused on point of view. How does point of view and, and adhering to that work with a nonlinear story where you might not have the protagonist that you're really supposed to be focused on Does't don't those two kind of contradict each other and if so how do we get around that?
3: Well if you look at a parallel structure and you've got two or more stories going on at the same time Lord of the Rings is a good example. you've got main characters separating and they meet occasionally and, and sometimes they're off doing their own things uh, you, then you're going to have more than one point of view. But sometimes when you've got the a structure where you're just going back and forth in time, you may have the same character's point of view that whole time.
4: Yeah, a very good example of that is um, Ursula Le Guin's uh, The Dispossessed, I don't know if anybody's read that, uh, which starts at the pivotal point of the narrative and then the second chapter is when the protagonist is a very young child uh, and then the next chapter is after – first chapter and so ultimately we see what happened from the pivotal moment of the first chapter running to the end of the book alongside the events that led up to the first chapter of the book and you don't get confused or uh, in any way lost at all and it's brilliantly put together from a single point of view and knits together into a very very um, powerful and uh, quite moving kind of finish Uh, As
2: as, you know the person has to um, sell these manuscripts and read them and and find out what is probably working, and what probably isn't working, is that the point of view is something that um, um, certainly most first-time authors don't understand, don't appreciate, and frankly, actually, usually don't even bother to try and find out about. Which irritates me because if you, you know, if you you, you try to develop any other skill in life, you you would, you know, um, read at least f- read a few books about it and, and find out a bit about it, maybe maybe take a course. But everybody seems to think that they can. Write, you know, the the next big fiction blockbuster without any instruction or training or even thought. Sometimes, my feeling is that point of view is 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 just a device. Actually, I mean, I'm I'm a big um a big proponent of point of view, but I think it's just a device for doing what you can do in other ways, which is engaging our emotions. And the the reason that point of view. Um, doesn't work on many, many manuscripts I, I see is that it simply doesn't engage us. We actually don't get into the protagonist's head. We don't empathize and our emotional response therefore is zero. I've shut everyone up now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: just depressed us all. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's supposed to be an for man. <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't depress, but it, it. I think trying to do things non-linear just adds another few steps that you're going to potentially stumble on and yes
5: and and it's it's where I've been i personally i think for months start with my writing
1: yeah and i think it, it's something that well with ursula i mean this was a very talented skilled storyteller but for new authors or people who are learning the craft or honing the craft i think it, it just adds confusion i mean you know the old keep it simple stupid before you start mm. getting fancy get to the point where you can handle the basics then you can launch a little on on the less traditional story styles and things of that sort
2: that's very very good advice Beverly so here we are right at the end of the year um I'd like everybody please to um to to tell us what they've enjoyed most about the year um either reading or in in any other media The, the things that have um made our lives a little bit better um, Beverly, why don't you kick off?
1: Well, I've I've read some wonderful books. Uh, I've read old books. I've read new. Um, I actually reread James Hilton's Lost Horizon. I had mm-hmm. forgotten just how much is in that book, so that's going to be my recommendation for the year. It's an old book, but. It's still a haunting, lovely, lovely story. That's James Hilton's Lost Horizon. That's where Shangri-La comes from.
2: Absolutely. It's a nice film, nice film as well. Dave?
4: Uh, Yeah, I did a bit of rereading as well. I've been doing quite a lot of new reading, which has been quite good. I have enjoyed the... this sounds terrible, doesn't it? Uh, the the Michel Paver Wolf brother and so on. I think they've they, they, I've enjoyed those enormously. Um, but something I revisited that always makes me laugh, even in in, in the most difficult times, is Spike Milligan's war memoirs. Mm-hmm. And if. Anybody has not read those books, then they're just doing themselves a great disservice they i don't are... know how
2: how can we explain Spike melligan to our transatlantic friends
4: oh you I can't you just can't I mean, may,
2: maybe maybe think Monty Python,
5: but much more so well you, you've just got to sum it up with uh, what he wants wants on his tombstone don't you uh, I told you I was ill
4: <laughs> classic. No, they're, they're wonderful books. They're, they're funny. They're tragic. If, if anything seems to get across the notion of young men caught up in total madness, uh, those books do. They're very witty. They're some of the few books that will make you laugh out loud every time you read them. Fabulous recommendation. Things.
2: That's fabulous. Thanks very much, Dave. Donna.
3: Well, I- for, for Book of the Year, it would really have to be the Harry Potter finale, wouldn't it, uh, by any standards? And I, guess, I just loved yeah. it, and I loved the whole series. But um, I'd say my personal favorite of the year besides uh, J.K. would be The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane by Kate DiCamillo. Um, hmm. a, it, it's hard to describe. I, I would describe it as a coming of age for a stuffed rabbit, but it's way more than that. And <laughs> <laughs>
4: I must Brilliant. go and buy it. it yes. great. Yeah.
2: I'd love to have sold that, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. And uh, last, but by no means at least,
5: Richard. Um, well, I, I was going to say on Chesil Beach, but since I won the bid for J.K. Rowling's Beetle of the Bard, oh. um, only cost oh. me 2, two million. Uh, so you, you won't be joining us next year, obviously. Or may, maybe we'll buy a satellite <laughs> phone
2: from your private orbiting island.
5: <laughs> no, I, actually, I, I, I was going to have to admit that my, my favourite point of reading this year was was literally um, reading J.K.'s latest Harry Potter and mm-hmm. I, I do feel kind of embarrassed on, on the literary front but what, what a
3: story it uh, was wonderful yeah. the whole it, series it, it, was. It was, I loved it too and, and, and the ending was perfect it, 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 yeah. she wrapped everything it was, up it, it she did wonderful. a good
1: job
2: and what, what a backstory too for every aspiring author everywhere I mean that is the, the classic fairy tale story isn't it for all aspiring writers
5: yeah, and and, and half, half, half the aisle. enjoyment, particularly with with the last book, was being there with everybody else and and sharing in something. And and for for J.K., whether she's getting lots of money or not, for her to be able to bring children and adults together to do reading, yeah, and and, and read through the night for ten hours straight to finish yeah. a book. That's a big uh, deal. That 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 is a big deal. Yeah. And, and really. I, I hope that in the next next year or two we have. Uh, another author do a similar well, thing let,
2: absolutely let's hope some of them come from
5: latope writers
2: currently. that's great thank you very much richard and that wraps it up for this week and for this year on the Litopia After Dark team this week were Donna Borman, Dave Bartram, Beverly Gray, and Richard Howes. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.litopia.com podcast, where you'll also find a handy comment form for all your thoughts, comments, and reactions. You can also send feedback, either by email or MP3 file. We're very happy to take those. If you're feeling adventurous, take um, send all correspondence rather to us at our email address, which is podcast at litopia.com. Com. And just a closing thought if you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a good review on iTunes and let your friends know about us too? We'll be back in January, but for now, it's a very big thank you from me to our panel. Thank you very much, panel, and to our listeners. I'd like to wish you seasonal greetings and a very successful new year. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas and Merry
1: Christmas. Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah.